Today, we will seek to behold more of the glories of Christ that are beautifully packed into this short letter. Continue to encourage you to carry out the words of Colossians 3.16, which is to let the word of Christ, and we could even specifically say, let the word of Christ that's in Colossians here dwell in you richly. So we continue for about the fourth Sunday now to be in the first big section of the letter, which I would contend goes from 1-1 through 2-7. And we're in the first subsection of those verses that run from chapter, verse 3 of chapter 1 to the very first words of chapter 12, or perhaps to the very end of that section. The gospel we've seen so far and the gospel message has had a profound impact on an individual by the name of Epaphras who has gone and shared it with his community and God has raised up a church where the gospel message is having a powerful impact in their love, their faith, their hope, and it's having a powerful impact, according to verse 6, in all of the world, in all of the Roman Empire, Regardless of all the things that work against it, it is continuing to go out and to bear fruit and increase in that. And that has led Paul to open his letter with thanksgiving, great thanksgiving to God. And we noticed in the last couple of weeks in verses 3 through 8 that he is appreciating all that God is doing in the gospel. Now today in verses 9 through 12, his desire for more of all that God wants to do. So the intercession part of the letter. And then next week, Lord willing, verses 12 to 14, where he beholds and charges us to the glories of God's salvation in his son in a section that we might call praise. Here's what we're seeing today. When a mature is, when a believer is maturing, we thank the Lord for that, but we don't stop praying or let up in our praying for it. We realize that when God is bearing fruit in a church, in a community, in an individual, that there's always the human tendency to relax. It's in all of us to some degree. Satan will often step up his attacks. And we can just know there is always more that God is wanting to do no matter how great the work is that he's doing at the time, we're always living way below what is possible if we walked in greater faith. So again, Paul is practicing here what we're going to see as one of the culminating commands in the letter in chapter 4, that we always be a people who steadfastly, ongoing, continuously, steadily, day in, day out, situation after situation, keep going in prayer and being watchful. There's never a good reason to let up in praying. There's never an unnecessary reason to, or a necessary reason to let up. So part of the press here is that not growing, not becoming more mature, staying in a relatively young faith, makes a Christian life much harder, leaves one open to much more spiritual attack. And we see this in the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 where he exhorts the people there 
that they ought to be a lot further along in their spiritual journey, but they find that they have to, again, over and over, keep covering the basic principles of the oracles of God, which are foundational and good and necessary. But it's milk, ultimately, and there is solid food to be had, to be consumed, and the danger is those who just live on milk, that's all they ever go in their Christian life, are unskilled in the word of righteousness. They're childlike. Solid food is to mature people, to grow them up in Christ so that they have powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So leave the elementary doctrine of Christ as rich and good as it is, and it doesn't mean you forget it, but move on further toward maturity in him. So a brief exhortation, a reminder. Let's not just pray more actively when somebody has a struggle or an issue or a burden, as important as prayer is there. Let's not let up when they're excelling and doing well, and it's remarkable. Let's not presume that they don't need just as much prayer. We want, and God wants, not only great starts in the Christian life and great middle sections of the race of life where many, many, many drop out. But he wants all the way to great finishes. So again, as we noted last week, we're learning how to pray by looking at how Paul here is praying, and probably Timothy, and probably Epaphras, perhaps even in their own praying within uh, jail cells and uh, home confinement. So we see here a prayer that should be prayed for the universal church. We see a prayer that should be prayed for every church body, including, this is a tremendous way to pray for First Street Bible Church. We see a prayer that is for every gospel-believing body because we're not competing. We're wanting all to reach full maturity in Christ. This is a prayer to pray for our family. This is a prayer to pray for our children. This is a prayer to pray for everyone we disciple. This is a prayer to pray for every parachurch ministry and those we know involved in them. John MacArthur reminds us here, every Christian can minister directly to the spiritual well-being of other believers without ever seeing or speaking to them. We can play a role in their spiritual growth and even secure God's blessings for them, and that amazing means by which we do it is prayer. So uh, Monday and Tuesday, I got to slip out of town down to Kansas City for a brief but intense pastor's conference. Here's six different men open the word and feed my own soul. It was a sweet blessing. And the closing session, uh, the speaker who was supposed to come from Florida couldn't make it. So one of the men who was there uh, stepped in and uh, with far greater faith than I have and unpacked and opened the word and challenged pastors, about a thousand of us, in prayer and the importance of that. But I would have broadened this to all of us on some level, but particularly perhaps those who preach and teach. Here's a couple of my scribbled quotes slash paraphrases. We often emphasize our preaching over our praying. If we don't preach or teach well, or we do it poorly, everyone notices and is concerned. If we don't pray, no one notices 
and rarely are we concerned. Prayer produces fruit. And conversely, prayerlessness usually means fruitlessness. So that's why the command in Ephesians 6, which is often left off of the armor of God because there isn't an actual tangible word picture of an armor here, but this is the sealing line at the end of the sword and the shield, which are the word and the spirit, that all of that should lead to us praying, and here again is the continuous, at all times, praying in the spirit, praying and supplication, praying with perseverance, and praying for all the saints. And then last but not least about this prayer, this is how we should pray for ourselves, that God would work in these ways for his glory as he makes us more like his son. And if you want to think about it, these aren't just the words of Paul, right? Or Timothy or Epaphras. If these are the words of Christ, as Colossians 3.16 will say, then we can also know that this is how Christ is praying and interceding before the Father for us. It's a tremendous prayer, tremendous model, and will probably challenge most of us up tremendously in how to pray. All right, so the English teacher, how do we organize these thoughts? There are, there's, there's all kinds of debate about what is going on here and what's being committed, what's a main thought, what's a subordinating thought, what modifies what, partly because as we translate it, they end up almost all participles. So here's one common way, if you can go to the next slide, that many kind of unpack it, that they see being filled with the knowledge of his will as a foundational doorway entrance in the big main thought walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. You better write fast. It's not going to be up long. And then five different thoughts that all help define what walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is. It's probably the best way to go. I'm going to go with a little simpler way. If you can go to the next slide. And we're just going to look at seven participles. Seven, so participles are just Normally verbs, but they become descriptors when they're used in a sentence as descriptive things, adjectives and adverbs. So, seven ways that all Christ followers and all churches need to mature that we should be praying unceasingly or steadfastly for. To be filled with the knowledge of his will, to walk in a manner worthy, to be pleasing fully to him, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthen with all power. And then there's a subset thought there, I think, that that all leads to endurance and patience with joy. And then finishing out at the very beginning of verse 12 with giving thanks to the Father. So hopefully that doesn't confuse you too much, but that's the way we'll walk through. And we'll have about four minutes on each thought. Let's ask God's help on this. Holy Spirit, as we do each week when we come to the holy revelation of our almighty God that's recorded here in our Bibles, we long to hear your voice. So we come humbly, eagerly desiring to learn from you, yet painfully aware that we have all sorts of sin and weakness and incapabilities to grasp all of this. So please now, Holy Spirit, plow the soil of our hearts that grows so hard so quickly. 
water it generously, plant this truth deep into the soil, and work it so that we might be changed by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit and the Word into one glory of, of Christ to another. Please grant us a deepening understanding that will result even as we pray in this prayer in the bearing of much fruit for the glory of our great Lamb of God. We pray in your name. Amen. So, first, ongoing prayer. We'll just start in verse 9 with that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. I'm going to take that and then don't want to discount in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, but that is really reinforcing that we know his will and are filled with it in a spiritual way that leads uh, in wisdom. So some consider this kind of a thesis for all that's going to follow in the rest of the prayer. Um, and it seems to come out of the fact that knowledge is going to be a big deal in Colossians. When we get to chapter 2 and we look at the next main section of the letter, it will be about all kinds of, it appears, false teaching or wrong teaching about ways to grow, to be sanctified, to experience uh, God in deeper ways that Paul is simply going to warn the Colossians are wrongful, not helpful, taking us away. So we might say by a simple definition of what does it mean to be filled with the knowledge of his will, that we are so full of the truth of God in our hearts and minds and how we are to grow in his son that we don't fall for the empty or counterfeit deceptions and we're able to follow God's will for our sanctification according to his word. <clears throat> it's a pivotal statement and very similar if you think about it to what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Here is simply the added element of help us to grasp and understand that will so that it's lived and fleshed out in our lives. Ignorance of God, ignorance of his word, ignorance of his will always has grave consequences. So Proverbs 19.2 says that desire or zeal or passion without knowledge is not good. That's somewhere down the road that's going to break down. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So Calvin reminds us, faith rests not on ignorance, but on knowledge. And this is indeed knowledge not only of God, but of the divine will. This is a robust thought, so I'm just going to unpack several more definitions, hoping that some of this, all the various aspects of it sink in. It's realizing, and I would add, and feeling conviction about the grand script, the big picture that God is writing, his whole story that encompasses everything from Genesis to Revelation, that he wants each and every one of his people to be on that page and to be actively carrying out their roles on the stage when the script calls for their roles on the stage to be carried out. Douglas Moo defines it this way. Whoops. Yes, it's there. It's not some particular or special direction for one's life, which is the way we often think about the phrase God's will, but it's a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe. 
And in two weeks, in verses 15 through 20, we will unpack some of that in a very powerful, powerful section of this letter. At the conference this week, I got to hear J.D. Greer as well. And he was talking about missions and going. But one of the lines he said in there that fits here is, we function like narcissists when it comes to seeking the will of God. We make it so much about me and wanting to know God's customized will to whatever degree it's there and not so much about God's universal will. We care too little about God's big plan and maybe too much about our little sliver. We make it too much about ourselves and not nearly enough about God. A few more definitions. The ability to think through everything from God's spiritual perspective and not just man's, which is a maze of religious and worldviews and philosophies and advice and teaching and counsel and opinions and perspectives or even our own reasoning or intelligence. So Isaiah reminds us that as far apart, as high as the heavens, as huge as the universe goes, as so much bigger than our little earth is, so are God's thoughts and God's wills, will and God's ways um, above our own. So it takes tremendous help from God for us to be able to do this. A couple more definitions and comments uh, that I hope continue to help. It's, a revel it's the revelation of the whole counsel or coming to grasp the whole counsel of God, which remember the Colossians didn't have what we have when we think of how full that will of God is that's been revealed to us. It's knowledge, wisdom, and understanding that leads people toward Christ and away from lesser things. For David Garland reminds us very succinctly, wisdom that excludes Christ or makes him subordinate to something else is counterfeit wisdom. Christ is sufficient for every spiritual need, for all of our spiritual growth. All the answers and help are in him. Our problem is we tend to go outside of our Bible and try to gain knowledge of other things that are really, Paul is going to press us by the end of chapter 2, are saying of no real spiritual benefit. And the opening line of chapter 3 of Colossians is, therefore set your mind on things above. Like get thinking from God's perspective. So it might be helpful to just see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, which I think are the bookend ending of this section or near the very end, Paul tells, tells the Colossians he's struggling to encourage their hearts so they'll be knit together in love. And now notice what all that should do. A healthy church. To reach all the riches of full, there's fulfilled, assurance of, and here come the words again, understanding and the knowledge. And now he doesn't call it God's will. He calls it God's mystery. But then he tells us what that mystery is. He's simply saying, it's not going to be obvious to somebody who is trying to just do this without faith, without dependence on the Spirit. You just look at the Bible and you think you can understand everything in it by your human intellect. It's a mystery. But that mystery is Christ. And then he tells us, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you see how he's weaving this thought over and over. And the, the goal is that no one would delude you with plausible 
arguments against that. So the idea of being full is that it is controlling us. The knowledge of God's will, to have that knowledge with spiritual wisdom and understanding means that it's dictating all that we're doing, influencing everything that we're doing. One more Garland quote here, and we're heavy this week on him, but he unpacked it in many, 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 many more pages than everybody else. Well, almost everybody. He unpacked it clearly. What Paul has in view has nothing to do with some secret lore reserved only for the elite or some hidden key that unlocks the mysteries of the universe of the inner person. For Paul, understanding God's will involves recognizing how Christ is the fulfillment. Our, one of our words for Colossians is all-sufficient of God's redemptive purpose, how God's salvation is open to all people, how God intends for Christians to live in whatever situations they find themselves. God's will is embodied in the person of Christ, always. And he goes on to just simply say that that's what gives us then the ability to overcome everything that doesn't align with that. So always we talk about two ditches, and that's possible in this command or this prayer request as well. One ditch we can fall into is that we go active but without knowledge. But Paul's going to address now coming up that we can't have knowledge and it doesn't lead to action. That's the other ditch that he's going to address. It's not merely knowing what God's word says about his will. That's not the end in itself. True knowledge of God and his will is always intended to take over the human heart, to transform it, to give us a whole different driving worldview that controls our hearts, affections, our minds, thoughts, and our bodies' actions. Or, if you want to use the language of verse 10, it changes how you walk. So second, ongoing prayer, and the rest of these will be considerably faster if you're concerned. And some, as I noted earlier, see this as really the big defining result of knowing the will of God, so that it will lead to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And walk we're familiar with as a way that the Bible depicts life, living. So you'll live in a manner worthy of the Lord. And worthy of the Lord is intriguing here. In one sense, you and I are completely unworthy of, of even being able to walk with the Lord uh, uh, in any way. It's impossible to walk to that level of worthiness that God deserves from us. None of us has attained that. None of us will ever be able to perfectly do so. David Mathis says, is my life worthy of God? Gulp. Every self-affirming tendency inside of me is quick to mute that question. And yet, God commands it here, or calls for it here, calls us to pray for it here, so we know that he wants it to be part of our daily focus and ambition. That we are never fully able, and yet in Christ, in us, we are enabled to walk and live in ways that are worthy of our great God. So here's how I think of this that I hope is helpful for you. And if you've been here, you've heard some form of this. But as I think through what does it mean about worthiness, if God's salvation is a lowly thing, just not worth much to any human being or 
to your own soul, then it really isn't going to make much difference to you how you live. It's not going to influence or impact it because it's not that worthy of a thing. But if God's salvation is a great thing, the most precious thing in the world to you, then your life should seek to match the value and the worth of that. Or putting it another way, the worthiness of our walk reflects or reveals how worthy we really see God and his salvation to be. Simple illustration of if you're just ice skating in a local rink, it doesn't matter how poorly you skate, it doesn't matter how many times you fall, it doesn't matter what level of effort or what your performance looks like. It's just a nice activity to enjoy. But if you are given a sign to spot on the Olympic skating team, it makes all the difference in the world how well you skate, how often you fall, and what level of effort you give. It's no longer just a nice activity you occasionally participate in and enjoy, but it becomes an all-consuming passion, focus, and work you give your whole life to. There's nothing we work harder at, skating with the highest excellence, because we know it is not just about us. We feel the weight of our entire country, our whole citizenship, and the weight of who we are ultimately skating for. So, the more we understand, verse 9, the value and the worth of God's will and salvation, the more we will seek in verse 10 to live up to its worthiness of our whole lives. Third ongoing prayer for all Christ followers is that we would be fully pleasing to him. Many lumped this, these four words in with walking worthy of him, fully pleasing to him. Certainly can be an argument for that. But I see in the New Testament that these phrases are addressed in different places or separately from each other in other places. So I think there's worth to us just pondering briefly what it means to have added this phrase that God intended for it to be there. That we are fully, and notice again, filled with the knowledge earlier in verse 9, now fully pleasing to him. Well, Ephesians 5, 8 to 10 helps us a little bit here. One of the other letters Paul wrote about this same time to a church about 100 miles away from Colossae. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk. There's that walk again. And now he's defining what walking worthy is. You walk as children of light. And the fruit, you're gonna, we're going to see fruit next in Colossians. So same language going on here. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. But he finishes with adding, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And we know from Hebrews 11.6, the great faith chapter, that without faith, without faith dominating our lives, faith in God, it becomes impossible. There aren't other ways that we can please him by bypassing the fact that we are walking in faith. So every choice we're making, we're either seeking to please ourselves, that's generally our biggest problem, or other people, for those of us who are people pleasers, grave danger there, or God. For many of us, and the first temptation is that we live mostly for ourselves and just partially to please God. And for those of us who wrestle with that second temptation, 
We live largely to make other people happy and not so much just partially to please God. So Paul wrote in Galatians 1.10, am, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? And then he makes this crushing statement. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So God's salvation is to swing that whole shift, that whole paradigm, 100% in a different direction, away from ourselves, that we will no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave his life for us and was raised. And so when we get to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, a familiar line, we walk by faith, not by sight, very closely connected to that is, so whether we're at home, meaning here on earth, or away with the Lord, it's never going to change. It's always to be our aim to please him. Fourth, ongoing prayer for all Christ followers is that they would bear fruit in every good work. Fruit or good works are produced and generated by Christ in us, by the Holy Spirit in us, by the word of God in us, by the gospel at work in us, by our salvation, and by God's grace. We can, there's a whole litany of things that are producing, starting in the human heart and flowing out, these good things, these fruit that please and honor God. We always want to be clear when we get to good works. We're clarifying here. We're clear. Our good works are not the root helping save us, but the fruit because God has saved us. They're not the cause, sorry, they're not the cause, they are the effect. So Ephesians 2, 10, right after verses 8 and 9 that make it very clear, over and over we're saved by grace through faith and not by any works of our own, we're then reminded we who have been saved in that way are God's workmanship. We've been created anew, afresh, given a whole new life in Christ Jesus, and here's why. For good works, or we could say for fruit to be born for God's glory. And it's a way that Jesus often spoke of it, whether you think of his uh, teaching about a good fruit will always bear, uh, a good tree will always bear good fruit, and a bad tree will always bear bad fruit. But you'll also notice that it's already shown up in Colossians. Clarence pointed it out to the newcomers class, the membership class this morning. It's back in verse 6 that the gospel is bearing fruit. But I can't talk about bearing fruit without going to my very favorite passage on this. So don't roll your eyes, those of you that have heard this 57 times from me. If there's nothing else embedded on your mind, may you remember this passage when I'm dead and gone. Jesus, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So here's the charge. Here's what bears fruit. Abide in me. Abide in Christ. Make your whole life and communion be in him and May he be abiding, living, residing, controlling in you. A branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you're abiding in the vine. 
And so again, he reiterates, I'm the vine. Now he adds, you're the branches. And whichever one of you branches abides in me and I in him, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing of any real spiritual worth. Then he circles back one more time after a couple of other comments. By this, my father is glorified. What What a stunning statement. It's by fruit and much fruit that God is glorified. And secondly, that we prove, we demonstrate to the world and to the church and to all that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Powerful, powerful call for us to abide in him and bear fruit. Moving on, though, because of time. Fifth, ongoing prayer for all Christ followers is that we would increase in the knowledge of God. And now we've come to my other passion and hot button. We have a phenomenal privilege, phenomenal privilege in Christ Jesus to know God in the deepest, most intense, personal, beautiful, precious way possible. So in verse 9, the prayer is we grow in knowing God's will. Here, it's that we would grow in knowing God himself, Christ himself, relationally, fellowship, communing closely with. And we know it's Paul's passion. He doesn't unpack that passion here. It's just a short little phrase. But if we go over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And verse 10, he's talking about pressing on that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And then the simple wording in Hosea 6.3, let us know, let us press on endlessly, relentlessly, day after day, without ever giving up or letting up, to know our Lord. For his going out and his coming are sure. Garland again. Some Christians think they learned all they needed to know in the early days of their Christian schooling, and they are complacently apathetic about progressing beyond their elementary knowledge. Many would just as soon leave faith and doctrine to others who would then dictate to them what they need to believe. Far too many people in that way. The result is that they remain woefully ignorant about what they believe and why and have only a dim awareness of God. Not only is it an incredible privilege, it's an absolutely critical one that we must never neglect First Peter 3.18 reminds us that this is why Christ died, to bring us to God, to get to know him. So those of us older who have walked with the Lord for decades, are you still increasing in your knowing of God? Is it a driving desire and prayer of yours? And those of you who are younger, who are still having your worldview formed so much, Are you doing so by knowing God? Are you seeking to know him better and better? Is he a priority among all the other demands of your time and your focus? May this always be our heart's desire to know and increase in the knowing of our God that will go on gloriously for all of eternity. Sixth ongoing prayer for all Christ's followers. And this is a long one. Here's the first half of that branch, but it fits in with the rest of 
being strengthened, and then he's going to repeat or come at it at another angle with all power, and then he's going to come at it with another angle according to his glorious might. It's quite a compilation of pretty synonymous terms, but all meant to reinforce. The point is to follow Christ, to have all of the things that have been stated so far actually happening in your life, it demands more of us frail human beings than we can do. Far more than we can handle. Whether we're talking about a given instant or a long trial or a whole lifetime. But I love how it was put at the conference this week and then I saw it in one of the commentaries as well. We have a God who supplies what he demands. Or as Luther put it in the mighty fortress, did we in our own strength confide, trust, rely? Our striving would be useless. And Garland, very simply, Christianity is not a DIY religion. The power, strength, might needed is far beyond our human capacity. So, Paul often speaks of this power. We already saw it in uh, Philippians 3, Briefly, but in Ephesians 1, he really unpacks this by the time we get to that last little set of lines. So the prayer is going to start the same way. I've heard of your faith and love. Sounds very much like Colossians. I'm not going to cease giving thanks, and I'm going to remember. And here's where he breaks into praying. A little differently now, but some of the same themes. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Lots of similarities there having the eyes of our hearts enlightened so you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And here we now come to where he's going to unpack this idea of power. What is the immeasurable, infinite greatness of his power toward us who believe according to, and now see what he's doing, he's circling back, the working of his great might. And now he's going to show us that great might particularly in two ways. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and that he worked in Christ when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So it's might, power, strength that actually comes from the very glory of God. It's the greatest strength possible, the purest, the best. It is unlimited, it is continuous, it is always available, and it's always more than we could ever use. None of us will ever be able to say, I couldn't do such and such because God didn't give me enough power to. Now, this power comes, how? In very practical ways. By depending on the Spirit of God that he is given to live within us. A huge source of inexhaustible power. Remember when Jesus bodily left the earth, one of the last lines he said to his disciples as they gathered there is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And boy, howdy, did they. So it can be with us. Secondly, we get that power through his word, particularly when, Colossians 3.16, it is dwelling in us richly. And that power comes through prayer. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. So we are being offered, as we go on to think about this endurance and patience, we are being offered the same strength, power, might that Christ was given for his powerful ministry to endure the awful suffering, to go through his agonizing death, to be raised from the dead, and to be 
ascend and to be seated by at the right hand of God and receive all glory where every knee will bow. The power that did all of that is the same power that's being made available to us. We're not getting the Benjamin Franklin cut deal on that, the little 10 cent version of it. We're getting the full blown thing offered to us so that we can endure such a huge theme of the scriptures with patience. Many think that's saying the same thing back to back, patiently enduring. We're steadfast. So as Churchill said, we never, ever, 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 ever give up or quit or be conquered or overcome. Whether it is hardship or suffering or affliction or trials or burdens or temptations or spiritual warfare, all things beyond our own ability to handle, all able to be endured patiently because of the strength and might that God provides. So I love the way that Alistair Begg, or I'm sorry, the way that 2 Corinthians 9, 8 captures all of this. I put Begg's name in there because as he took his congregation of that, he said, this is a humdinger of a verse. So here's a humdinger for you this morning. God is able to make all grace, and I love the added picture here, a reminder that it's grace in his power and his strength that he's giving you. To abound, that's a word that, that has the idea of being much more than you even need. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound, there it is, in every good work. God's work, power and strength aren't just to keep us from quitting. They're actually given to us to abound in every good work. Perhaps our greatest weakness is we don't ask for it or depend on it nearly as much as we should. And seventh and finally, of ongoing prayers for all Christ followers, that we would give thanks to the Father, and some would argue that with joy goes with a thanksgiving, so we could say with joy giving thanks to the Father. For what he has willed and done for what Christ has accomplished, for what is made possible. And I would just remind you again, Paul's being faithful to what he's going to write later in Colossians 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer. May your praying always be watchful, and may your praying always be with tons of thanksgiving in it. And actually, that's what Paul is going to do now. As soon as it seems, he says, giving thanks to the Father, comma, he breaks the rest of verse 12, all of verse 13, and verse 14 into praise. This is next week's text, but it's a great setup for the Lord's table as well for you to just worship some of what God has accomplished through his son. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness. Hallelujah just for that. Even if he did nothing more, but look what more he did. He has transferred you to the kingdom of... And now he gets to Christ, his beloved son, and now he turns to that and thinks of how in him, in Christ, we have redemption and beautifully the forgiveness of sins. So Scott McKnight said, all this, everything we've been looking at here, generates joy. God's grace at work in the believers as God inserts them into the story of God, that's all the way back to verse 9, 
for this world and creates a worldview that enables them to deal with suffering and hardship with joy. Or Garland, true Christians experience God's grace intensely and allow their gratitude for what God has done in Christ to shape their whole life. The closer we grow to God, the better we understand his will and his big picture, the more grateful we will grow. And as our gratitude grows, all kinds of other beautiful fruit grows out of the soil of gratitude. Worship does, commitment and devotion to our Lord, generosity, humility, willingness to sacrifice, and on and on. Gratitude is huge in growing those things. Every one of our prayers could end this same way giving thanks to the Father. Just being able to say, God, I thank you, even in advance, in light of everything I've just asked you, that is impossible for me to be able to do and you have to accomplish. But I can thank you because I know what you have done, I know what you are doing, and I know what you've promised that you're going to do. So, seeking the maturity of these seven things. Let's go to the Lord's table. But before we do so, let me pray this prayer for you. Lord, I pray now for each of us in this room, each of us who are part of this church body of Christ that's known as First Street Bible Church. I ask that you will fill each of us with a growing knowledge of your will and to do so in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I ask that you would help us walk in a manner worthy of you through every situation in our lives. I ask that you will make us more fully pleasing to you by the work you do in us. I ask that you will bear much more fruit in good works in each of our lives for your glory. I ask that you'll grow us in knowing you ever more fully. I ask that you'll strengthen us with all your power and glorious might so that we can endure everything opposing and attacking us and do so with patience and joy. And all of this, Lord, we ask and do joyfully thanking you for the incredible things you have done through your son. And we come now to your table to remember, to be renewed, to be healed, and to walk out invigorated in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.